Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com. I always love to hear from you. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, performance psychologist Jerry Hussey on the self doubt that fired him up to write his second book. Dr. Fiona Barry on opening her new Chinese medicine clinic in Cork and a new chapter in her life. And I went to the launch of the Future of Fertility show in Dublin. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was good. Another whirlwind of a week, but good. And I have had several little pushes from people or the universe, whatever you're having yourself, about delegating my work a little bit more. So I think a virtual assistant could be in my future. I hope they're ready to Mary Poppins the crap out of my life and find me more hours in the day. But I suppose that's the idea, really, isn't it? That you give them the jobs that will give you more space to do the work you love. I'll see how it goes. Remember, I talked about wearing the heart rate variability monitor recently for the well-being advantage. I had another meeting with Janine. You wear it for three days, they take all the data and then you have a discussion about what the data finds and maybe some pointers. And you can really see on the graph when you're in red. And that's not necessarily stress. That's just you going, you know, on the move. Your mind is active. Your body is active. And then when you're in green, you're either in rest or recharge. And that really spoke to me that things like doing this job even now, interviewing people, talking on my show, I'm in green. So I need to be doing more of that work. Whereas the driving late to places, I'm in red. And the doing the admin, the accounting, bits and bobs like that, maybe that could be taken away. Sounds very privileged for me to be picking what makes me green, but that's where we are now in life. You could email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Blue Balls Ireland is an organisation who create a safe space for men to open up about what's going on in their life. There's a swim at the 40 foot in Dunleary in Dublin every Monday, as well as meetups in other locations. They're looking to get as many men as possible to head out for a hike on International Men's Day. And I'm joined on the line by Dean Smith, one of the organisers from Off Grid. Dean, you're very welcome. Claire, good morning. How are we doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. You hold some of these Blue Ball events at your business off-grid in Wicklow. That's correct, yeah. So when the inception of Blue Balls was created, the founder, Owen Flood, who reached out to me initially had said, look, we're looking to build out a team of men who want to support other men on their journey of growth. And it just so happened that we had the space to be able to provide that. So since last November, we've catered for close to 15 or 16 events where we've brought in different guest facilitators to speak in regards to men's mental health, uh, we've ran active workshops. We also cater for these events at the end of every one with a dip into a cold plunge. Just something to to really invigorate the soul and make you feel like you're leaving there a uh, lighter version of yourself. And I've been out to Off Grid. It's, it's fab. You've got the infrared saunas and the ice bath that you're saying, the cold plunge. Um, and it's really important that rest and recovery part of our health and well-being. And it's so lovely to hear that you're also having talks and, you know, that that's part of it. It's not just the physical, it's also the emotional. Um, And what kind of things happen at these events? I mean, is there two men there? How popular well, are you, they? To give you, yeah, they're, they're getting extremely popular, if I'm honest with you, Claire. With, in the, the month of October was our busiest month to date. We actually had three different events go on within the period of October and we had three different guest speakers, all from different backgrounds and all in the men's workspace in Ireland. 
guests and they all brought something completely different. So the beauty of what we're finding from these evenings that we're hosting is they cater for every man, every man, every man that comes to these events will find some form of value in the guest speaker or in whoever is actually accommodating or facilitating the event. So to give you a kind of broad spectrum, there will be a check-in period at the start where men are welcomed into the space. Uh, there's an introduction and then it's a completely open floor up to you. How much you want to share, how little you want to share, it's completely based on how you're feeling in that moment. And what we found is just through this last year of growth and work on some of the guys who've been a part of this from the very beginning, they're creating this incredible cascade of openness. So once they come in and they introduce themselves and they say, look, I've been here for you for six months, eight months, and I'm noticing these benefits in my life. I'm feeling that I'm sleeping a little bit better. I'm able to maintain my levels of stress a little bit better. My communication with my kids or with my wife or in my business is getting better. It's, it's helping other men to say, oh, wow, maybe this is a place where I can grow, learn and develop as an individual. And I think a lot of that is unraveling the conditioning that's been put on us for such a long period of time. Um, and we could probably go on about that all day, but outside of that, I don't think we have enough time. But yeah, the events are they're structured to a certain degree, but there's also space to be able to leave it for an open floor. Yeah, and it's good to have the facilitator there because you're coming to listen to the breathwork expert or or whoever it might be. So you're not feeling like it's just going and you have to to bear your soul, but it just might happen at check-in or, you know, when you're when you're chatting. What about the hike next week? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, of course. So we've arranged a, a men's hike next week. And what we're trying to do is just really create an impact on having men stand shoulder to shoulder. So what we find in in the space that we accommodate for within off-grid is that even during the check-in periods, men are standing next to each other. And there seems to be this camaraderie side of things when men stand shoulder to shoulder, there's this ease of conversation. They don't feel like they're being looked at. They feel like they're being looked with. Somebody is standing next to them viewing what they're saying. So we found that if we could bring enough people together, enough men together in an environment where it's healthy, it's stimulating, it's outdoors, you're in nature. We've got a moderate hike. So in all around, it's about three hours long. It's going to be kicking off at 10 a.m. in Glen Cullen. Uh, outside of Glencullen Adventure Park. So there's plenty of free parking there. It's on Sunday the 19th. You can bring the kids along without absolutely any issue. We're going to have some speakers talk prior to the event from some of the surrounding men's groups in the country that are coming to this event as well. So it's not just a blue ball stimulated event. It's actually going to be all other forms of men work, men's work groups coming through. We're bringing in the Crewmen, uh, Selbridge Boys Club, Dublin Boys Club, Blue Balls. So we're looking to just try and make a bit of an impact, to be quite honest with you, and and make people think, oh, wow, like there is communities out here for me to tap into. If I'm a man and I'm struggling or I'm feeling alone or feeling a little bit lost, there is other men out there that are potentially feeling that way. And I can go out of my way to be a part of this. All of these organizations are completely charitable. They're completely organized by people who want to give their voluntary time to help impact other men, which is incredible. So the, the hike itself will be about three hours moderate. Afterwards, we'll have some, some music. There'll be discounts on coffees, tea, refreshments. And the whole hike is over spending a little bit of time connecting back into the group and finding if you've gained any, any value through the experience yourself. So us women, we have to stand out of this one because this is a, a, a new revolution that's happening among men. And I, I think that's fair enough. You know, we're kind of breaking down gender stereotypes and no matter how you identify, it is still important for men to take this step, isn't it really? Yeah, out, outside of the gender side of things, whether it be men or women, um, what we find is that when you really scale it back to the statistics, men have a lot much uh, a much harder time communicating the issues that are going on in their lives versus women. So even when you scale it back to to suicide rates, the, we see even in Ireland that there's a ten percent increase over women because women are that they understand the power of communication, whereas men are conditioned to believe that 
in order for us to resolve a problem, we need to not speak about that problem. And that's been that way for such a long period of time. And we're really trying to create a positive impact on the understanding of manning up. What What is that? How do you define your version of manning up? So for me, it's being able to spell, speak healthily about the issues that I have in my life that I'm facing with the people who I love and who love me because it directly impacts those people. If I can be able to be a better version of myself, it creates a better version of me for everybody around me. And that's what we're finding is men have, have a little bit of difficulty in doing that at the early stages because there's so much discomfort in communicating what's really going on for you. So that's, that's kind of where we understand that there is this revolution happening. Women have had this for a very long period of time. They've always said in circle, they're fantastic communicators. Men, on the other hand, we tend to swallow it and bury it and just leave it lie because it's easier to do that than to bring it to the surface and speak about the issues that we're having. Yeah, and if sitting in circle feels like a step too far, then a hike is a perfect way because, as you say, you're out in nature, you're, no one's looking straight at you, you're walking and talking as you go. Where can people find out more? Yeah, absolutely. So they can find out more across a whole platter of, uh, of places. So across Blue Balls Ireland, on our social media, on our website, you, you can also find out on Crewmen, uh, Selbridge Boys Club, Dublin Boys Club, and just in general, any men's, men's work that's going on, to go online, type in men's work near me, you're going to find somebody that's doing something that may be beneficial to you. And a lot of these men are doing it out of the, the goodness of their hearts to be able to make a positive impact on men in their community. So we encourage anybody that that's feeling like after listening to this, you know what, maybe it is time for me to step up and step out here that you, you go and do so. Well, that's 10 a.m. next Sunday, International Men's Day, the 19th of November at Glen Cullen in Wicklow. Dean Smith of Off Grid, thank you so much for coming on. Claire, my pleasure. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, this week was Fertility Awareness Week and so timely that the Future of Fertility show held its launch in Dublin this Friday. I went along to meet its organisers, Liz and Nikki Dwyer, and to hear from some of their speakers. And I started off by asking Nikki why they want to put on this show. We really wanted to help people in Ireland. It's it's very much like our sister show, Future Beauty. It's This whole area is a medical minefield. There's information coming at you from every angle and it's very very hard to cut through all the noise and actually get to the facts and the things that will support you in your journey because each journey is very very unique whether it's surrogacy whether it's IVF whether it's male factor infertility the list is endless so what we are trying to do is similar to our other event is get the best people in the country put them all under one roof and and like lift the lid on this conversation so that everybody can just have access to this information so they can educate themselves and they can find a journey that is suitable and correct for them. And you want this to have a little bit of heart. All the medical expertise will be there, but you're looking for this to also be filled with some heart, empathy and compassion. Yeah. Well, I think I think the thing that's often forgotten about in this journey is that at the bottom at the bottom of this or at the start of this rather is somebody who is desperate for a baby. Um, and sometimes that's one person on their own or sometimes it's a couple and um and, and you know and there's a human and a human element is a very emotional, very vulnerable side to this and you know, people who are trying to have a baby, um, like it's one of the most vulnerable experiences that you'll ever go through in your life. So, like, whilst the science is important, um, and to understand the the medical side of it, and that's why we have all our, our medical experts. The other side of it is so important to nurture yourself from within, you nurture yourself from a nutrition point of view, nurture yourself holistically, um, with therapy, counselling. Understand that the, this is a holistic approach. 
um, and no, it's not one, one size fits all so you know the best chance that you can give yourself is to equip yourself from every angle food you know mindfulness science medicine the whole gambit and um, you know give yourself the best chance hi my name is uh, dr alex aldape i'm the group medical director of sims ibf and what can you tell us about fertility in the modern age well it's definitely changing uh, I, I think that uh, currently uh, we have seen a, a um, kind of an increment of, of both aspects so i think in, in a way we are seeing more patients that they are struggling to get pregnant but also we can tell you that we are seeing more patients at the same time that they are more concerned about fertility and proceeding to treatments for fertility preservation. I think that the, the, the big change uh, in the last 10 years will be that we are seeing that unfortunately we are delaying the, the parenthood and for that reason we are seeing uh, patients there struggling with low ovarian reserve and also on male sides we also are seeing uh, well patients that they are struggling with poor sperm concentration too. Yeah, but that will be the main the main change. And that trend is that set to change, or will we just see fertility rates decline more? Well, f fertility rates are kind of uh, uh, I would say that they will, they are one in six couples they are struggling to get pregnant, so that hasn't changed too much. But I think what what is changing is just that we are delaying when we are when we are uh, kind of. Uh, uh, good for be becoming parents. So, so and, and because of that, because we are delaying this, the problem is that when we are trying for a baby, it's probably not the best, the best time for doing so. So uh, we have changed a lot the way we live now, but the, the biological clock is ticking anyway for, for both men and women. So what about things like egg freezing? And we see a lot more talk of that in the media now. Is that going to be something that becomes perhaps more commonplace? Yes, absolutely. We are seeing now already that we are, we are seeing a trend that we are doing more treatments in relation to egg freezing. Uh, and yeah, it, it because makes sense. I mean, it's not perfect treatment. We know that, uh, of course, sometimes eggs that are frozen, they don't yield the same quantity of blastocysts or they don't yield uh, um, good quality embryos at the end sometimes. But it's also true that there is the, the technique that is, uh, that is more um, that is the best technique so far that we have 2023. So it's not still like an insurance because there is no way that we can guarantee that freezing so, uh, 15, 20 eggs, uh, they're going to uh, deal on an ongoing pregnancy and live birth at the end. But definitely it is the what we have and definitely is what we need to advise for our patients that they are, um, well, considering to delay uh, uh, motherhood. And why don't we hear as much talk about sperm freezing? It's not as popular. It's not as popular as a sex freezing. I have to say, I think it's just because the wrong conception that men they can become parents whenever. Okay, but it's actually not true. So, in fact, uh, men's fertility start declining quicker in terms of, or earlier compared to female. But the thing is, like it taking longer to be completely up to zero. Okay, so but also 35, 40 years old men, the the, the fertility also starts to decline, but sometimes can get up to 60 or 65. Okay, whereas in women the, the decline, the big decline starts at 35 but at 40 42 probably probably it's gone it's not it's not so popular but we are it's uh, we have few patients uh, looking into that but the the main indication will be in relation to treatments for instance like they unfortunately if they have to do treatment for cancer they are looking to do this in advance yeah that's the main indication so because we are living differently as you say are we going to have to think about 
becoming parents in a different way. So this egg freezing, sperm freezing, even donation, egg donation and sperm donation, that that just may be become more a part of modern parenting. Oh yeah, 100%, I, I agree. So uh, particularly when we are seeing that um, unfortunately, we have tried treatments, uh, IVF cycle, exit treatment, PGTA, uh, and unfortunately, we are not getting there. So, yeah, so absolutely, we're, it is more common about 40, 42 years old, okay? But, yeah, I think that in the, in the future, definitely, that is what is going to happen, that we are going to, yeah, having this, uh, this treatment, like egg donation, as you say, and, and also double donation, and even there's other kind of treatments like embryo adoption that is similar to double donation that we don't have in Ireland, but abroad, there is an offer for doing those treatments. But yeah, it's definitely something that's going to be more common now. My name is Suzanne Domater, D-O-M-O-T-O-R. And who have we got here in your arms? This is baby Amelie. And tell me about your journey to motherhood. I had a very easy journey, surprisingly. I was diagnosed with endometriosis after quite a long battle, but I was diagnosed quite early thanks to my wonderful mother. Um, so I was able to have my nice laparoscopy. Happily, I. I got married and we started our family when I was just 22 years old. So this is my second baby. Um, three years later, we welcomed Amelie. And uh, I think we're quite happy, quite lucky to have, you know, finished our family at age 25. I'm very blessed. Well, people say it's a young person's game. You're, you're <laughs> better equipped for an all-nighter than somebody in their 40s. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> it's definitely a different ball game to tequila shots on a bar. <laughs> but it must have been fantastic to have a supportive mom, number one, but one that has expertise in this area who was a midwife who is a fertility coach but to take that fear and shame and worry out of endometriosis absolutely I mean it was all thanks to my mother that I actually realized I did have something that wasn't the norm that I was able to get treatment and an actual diagnosis I was able to you know have my excision surgery and happily um, jump straight into motherhood and to happy healthy babies I really am completely blessed to have had the support and guidance of my mum because one of the symptoms of endometriosis can be very painful periods and often women just accept that as this is what it is to be a woman. Exactly and because the levels of endometriosis, I mean one in ten women actually have endo whether they realise it or not, I think you know dysmenorrhea is thrown around, yes you have painful periods, yes go on a pill, try to you know kind of mask the symptoms. An awful lot of women, I mean women take on average nine years to get a diagnosis and um, it's incredibly sad that a lot of women just kind of grin and bear it and get on with it and it's not until later when they are deciding I might want to try to have a baby that it doesn't come easily or quickly or naturally for them that then they kind of realise there might be something extra under, underlying there so um, I think early diagnosis kind of being in tune with your body knowing kind of what to look for what to what to expect on the way, what's normal, what's not normal. It's really good to know early on, I reckon. Uh, Dr. John Waterstone, I'm the medical director of uh, Waterstone Clinic. So it's an IVF clinic based in Cork, but with a, a clinic in Dublin also. I used to deliver babies working the HSC, but I don't anymore. Now I just work in the IVF unit and I, I, I do um, an operating list in the Bonsecourt Hospital in Cork as well. So you're given the title of one of the founders of fertility treatment here in Ireland. How did that title come about, even if you're not fully okay with it or maybe wouldn't put it down on your CV? Uh, I suppose I'm one of the older hands in uh, IVF in Cork. I trained in Dublin originally as a medical student, went to the UK, worked in the NHS for 12 years, and that's where I learned my IVF skills. Came back, relocated back to Ireland um, and opened an IVF unit. So I suppose... 
seniority-wise, I'm one of the more experienced people um, in IVF in Ireland today. Um, some of my contemporaries have retired, but I'm still hanging on in there. <laughs> and where are we at in Ireland with fertility and how do we measure up against the rest of the world? Uh, we could probably do better, to be totally and absolutely frank with you. Um, what's held things back here to some extent, I think, is that we don't have a mandatory uh, transparent reporting system for IVF success rates in this country. They do in the UK, have done for decades. They do in the USA, have done for decades. So that's a system whereby clinics are obliged by law to report their success rates in an intelligible and standardised way so the general public and particularly patients can have a look and decide logically as to which clinic they would rather go to. IVF is complex. It's not like taking an appendix out. It's, I know HSC funding has come on board and that's fantastic for some patients, but many patients are not eligible and will continue to pay for IVF out of their own pocket. And if they do pay, you know, what are they paying for? They're not paying for a baby, they're paying for a chance of a baby. Um, and IVF treatment doesn't always work, so you'd, if you're the person spending the money, you'd like to be going to the clinic, which is giving you the best possible chance. And because it is so fiddly, if anything, I say, goes wrong, then things cannot be as good as they might be. But in Ireland, at the moment, it's very hard for patients to know who, are, you know, which clinics to avoid, because maybe they do less well in terms of success. Um, so I think... The Irish legislation that's before the door at the moment, the legislation which is going to govern IVF in Ireland in the future, it didn't actually, the original draft legislation didn't have any provision for mandatory uh, transparent reporting system, but I think it should do. I mean, our clinic has made multiple representations to the government saying, listen, this needs to come in. It would, it would put pressure on, on clinics to do as well as they possibly can, not just profit financially from, from IVF care but do as well for the patients as they can and uh, it would therefore in, it would improve standards and it's, it's basically it's what the patients deserve isn't it? And we're not helping everybody either with the funding that was announced there are very strict criteria which exclude lots and lots of groups sure. of people um, do you see it as a step in, in the right direction? Of course, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, we, it's only just starting to come on stream now. We're seeing a few patients a week coming through with HGC funding on board, which is fantastic. And some of those, when we look at them, are patients that maybe we might have seen before, but were hampered by the fact that they were finding it hard to afford IVF and therefore didn't come through before paying for themselves. And so it's fantastic to see those patients coming through. Inevitably, there are criteria. I mean, even in the UK, where people seem to think that IVF is free, it's not really. It's free for a proportion, but probably a third of the, the IVF cycles which take place in the UK are actually NHS-funded, and the rest of them are self-funded. There always have to be criteria. And you can argue until the cows come home as to whether the criteria are fair or not. Like, so it's restricted to younger patients because it's more likely to work for younger patients, and therefore, in terms of bangs for buck and babies coming out of taxpayers' money, it's felt that the, the treatment should be, the funded treatment, uh, whether it's by the HTC or the NHS, uh, should be restricted to people who are younger, under 40. Is that fair? You could argue that it isn't. You could argue that it's ageist, but that's the way that it is. Um, in the UK, and to a certain extent, we tend to copy the UK in what we do, which is understandable. There's no point in reinventing the wheel, so to speak. Uh, with regard to the HTC criteria, they've got quite a st strict cutoff for BMI, 30, so you can be not that overweight but be excluded um, under the HSC um, criteria because you're a little bit overweight that might be I think this may be a little bit unreasonable 
So that would cut out a lot of people. Uh, and this is the stipulation that if you've had more than one treatment cycle previously, IVF treatment cycle completed, you will not be eligible for funding. Again, you could say that maybe isn't uh, isn't fair, but the criteria are what they, they are, and there always have to be criteria, but inevitably people are excluded, and inevitably some patients are going to have to go on paying for, for care. I was interested to read this week that the World Health Organization view infertility as a disease, and I don't think in society we necessarily view it that way. You wouldn't deny somebody treatment for cancer or another disease, and you would have full empathy and compassion for them on that road. Do you think we should view people's right to parenthood, however that path is, as a fundamental human right? Um, yes, primarily, yes. But um, we only have to look at the, the HSE billions overspend this year to realise that there are only so many health dollars or health euros and, and it's a very difficult decision as to how those should be apportioned and what takes precedence. Uh, but yeah, in an ideal world, um, subfertility is uh, a disease, it's stressful. Um, and people do have a, probably have a right to getting funded treatment. But as, they, as the years go by and so many more and more treatments become available for all sorts of things, it's very hard always in any country to find the, the health euros that are going to fund everything that you would like to do. And so inevitably there are always some sort of restrictions. Um, but yeah, in an ideal world, there would be un- open-ended funding for, for fertility treatment. Of course there would, yeah. Hi, I'm Helena Tuberty, fertility coach and therapist. And you see couples and individuals who are all on all kinds of, of journeys to fertility. And, and some, I suppose, you have to manage their expectations of, of not becoming parents. Absolutely. There are no guarantees. Um, IVF offers a chance of pregnancy. And I think, you know, the importance of optimizing natural fertility and preparing for the realities of IVF is how I guide, support people. Uh, the emotional toll is massive and mindset is very important and often overlooked in the rush to get on and you know do a treatment or whatever so I guess I bring you know over 35 years of experience in realistically guiding people to having the best outcome they can have and then addressing what happens next if there is no pregnancy how they live their lives well without a child involuntary childlessness being childless not by choice is you know it's a huge grief it's a huge loss right throughout life i also help people who've had miscarriage there is an increased rate of miscarriage with ivf and that is incredibly devastating Um, you know the markers the milestones the hidden grief that it you know for years and years and years this child is part of your life always, Um, how to begin to prepare for another pregnancy, how to deal with early pregnancy anxiety. So of course, you know, having a child is amazing, but when you would like to have another child, it can come as such an incredible shock if there is a delay or if you find that you need to have IVF. It can be absolutely horrific from the costs which are massive to juggling appointments in childcare uh, and again the uncertainty that of course we love and adore this child and we're ready to have another one so i guess i help people with you know issues after traumatic birth traumatic delivery um stillbirth um you know where there has been massive infections near-death experiences so it really is it's very broad it's built on my midwifery and gynae career initially 
um, very much dealing with mindset emotions with trauma fertility trauma is how we describe the issues that people have when they are facing not being able to have a child at will it is being recognized more and more and it is a crucial part of the fertility equation i've seen so many changes people are accessing my care i'm seeing more men which is wonderful because we forget about men they just provide sperm and that's it it's like no no they're 50 percent of the equation and their little hearts suffer greatly too and it couples often on the same page and there is a huge toll on relationships now very many times as i would say relationships can be strengthened but the risk to relationships down the line breakups is massive and that is a double whammy uh, so I like I see people as individuals because it's so much easier to um, you know and so much uh, I work in brief therapy so one-on-one -on -one is really good and we're seeing more solo parents by choice more same-sex couples so you know it's developing and growing and opening up so I'm very optimistic about the whole fertility future in Ireland. The Future of Fertility show is on in the RDS on the 2nd and 3rd of March 2024. And for more, see futurefertilityshow.com. Coming up after the break, Dr. Fiona Barry on opening her new Chinese medicine clinic in Cork and a new chapter in her life. Alive and kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, my next guest, Dr. Fiona Barry, holds an honours degree in biomedical sciences and a PhD in pharmacology. Following several years of postdoctoral research in the area of cardiovascular medicine, she altered her career path and undertook a four-year course in Chinese medicine, studying in the prestigious College of Integrated Chinese Medicine in the UK. Since qualifying in 2004, she's continued to study various aspects of Chinese medicine, as well as gaining qualifications in behavioural techniques, including neurolinguistic programming and quantum thinking transformation. She recently opened a new clinic in Bishopstown in Cork and she joins me in studio now. Fiona, lovely to see you again. And gorgeous to see you too. Full disclosure, I was there at the opening of the clinic and it was a really gorgeous day. You had friends, family, clients there. How has it felt now to have it all up, running and happening? Brilliant. I think I needed the official launch to make sure, you know, to really set a kind of, I suppose, a line in the sand to move forward with. Um, and I'm still tired, I'd have to admit, but it's been fantastic. And I think doing that, even some of my clients, which kind of surprised me when we did the questions and answers, I had so many of them who came up to me and said, oh, my God, I didn't realise you had half the qualifications you have. So kind of was eye-opening. So I think an awful lot of people don't actually realise how long I've been, I suppose, in the medical sphere. And I mentioned all your qualifications in the introduction and that you then sort of pivoted a little into Chinese medicine. You were a guest on the show previously. You, you do a lot of work with Revive Active right. and we came together then. But would you mind reminding listeners about that change you made and why? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, so I suppose my background is in biomedicine. And then I went on and I did a PhD in pharmacology because that's what you do when you don't know what you want to do. Um, and then I spent a good number of years doing uh, various postdocs, all in the area of cardiovascular medicine. And to be honest, I think my 
I've always been interested in medicine. I've always been, had a huge respect for the human body and I would be regularly found eating my dinner in front of, I don't know if you remembered the programme, Tomorrow's World. So that used to be where I'd eat my dinner and it was always when it was to the on the biology section or they were doing some sort of operation on a medicine. So um, I kind of just didn't know what I wanted to do and at 17, I suppose, you think you're really mature, but I was really immature. So finishing school, I had thought about doing medicine and I thought, oh God, that's nine years. Oh, like that seemed like a lifetime to me. So I kind of took the easier route and thought, no, I'll do biomedicine. That's shorter. And then I carried on and did a PhD. So I was still there nine years <laughs> um, in, I suppose, formal education. And then when I decided to pivot, it was because I'd always wanted to help people. And I suddenly realised really working in a lab wasn't cutting it for me. I loved working with my hands. I loved that side of it. But I was very much on a trajectory to end up having my own lab, running a lab and then being stuck in an office, writing grant proposals and just leading other people through their projects. And to be honest, the idea of that just horrified me. So I considered going back and doing... I suppose, Western medicine and retraining that way. But I don't do well with bureaucracy. Even when I was, I suppose, doing research, I'm a really lateral thinker um, and I'm very, I work very intuitively as well. So I know that they were my supervisors, both for my postdocs and even for my PhD, they used to be tearing their hair out because normally scientists go from, you know, they look at a problem and they go very logically from A to B and then when they've discovered B they go to C and I was really bad at going from A to kind of F and then saying oh I'll fill in the, the middle bits afterwards so I found it even hard to communicate with a lot of my peers um, but invariably I'd have to say I was right which was great um, so I had had acupuncture myself uh, when I was uh, doing my PhD. I, had I was suffering really badly with my sinuses. And I suppose the way I looked at it is my own medicine failed me. Western medicine failed me. It was constantly just from one kind of medication to another medication. And then I'd get really bad rebound sinuses. So somebody suggested to me at that time about would I consider acupuncture? And I thought I will do anything if I can get relief from this because it was constant headaches. It was, you know, and it was really hard trying to concentrate and do anything. So I went to see a guy who had just returned from China with his qualifications and set up and had just set up a Chinese medicine clinic in Cork. And uh, it was great because he had just set up. He had a lot of time, which was great because I asked loads of questions. And I was fascinated by the fact that when I, would, when I went in with my sinuses, he sat there for about an hour with me and he spoke to me about, you know, my bowel movements, about my digestion, about my menstrual cycle, about my life and my family life, where I lived, you know, my environment. And I was thinking, what has this got to do with my sinuses? And he very succinctly explained to me that, you know, that the central, I suppose, tenet or philosophy to Chinese medicine is that you can't separate the mind from the body and you can't separate the person from their environment. And I thought, well, that makes complete sense. So he said, I have to get an overall view of what's going on with you to know what's driving this. So... I had a few treatments and I'm happy to say it worked. It worked brilliantly for me and everything improved. My digestion improved, you know, my concentration improved, my sleep improved. And not only that, I'd also been suffering with migraines and I've never had a migraine since and that's 30 something years ago, telling my age now. And so the clients you see in clinic now, because look, it's, it's a new clinic, but it's just a, a new 
location you've been seeing clients for a long, long time. What are the kind of issues that you can help with? Even though I suppose I've called it a women's health centre, I do see men as well, uh, particularly when it comes to fertility. Because when it comes to fertility, it is two people. It's not just the woman. Um, So I I do see an awful lot of hormonal issues, I guess. So a lot of fertility, a lot of menopause. I'm delighted um, to now be seeing an awful lot of teenagers coming in to me for menstrual issues and girls in their 20s. And that's really rewarding because you can correct so many of those issues really early on and really quickly. Um, I would also see people, I suppose acupuncture is known for being really good for pain, both chronic and acute. So I do see a lot of that. But I also see an awful lot of immune issues, digestive issues. You know, if, if whatever it is, basically, I can treat it and I see it. And why do you start among the questionnaire that you mentioned you were asked with your sinus? Why do you look at people's tongue? Ah, because your tongue is an external manifestation of your internal environment. So your tongue can tell you a phenomenal amount about what's going on in the body. And it's really good for giving you an idea of what's been going on in the body for a while. We also check the pulses. That tells you what's going on in the here and now. And the pulses never lie. Sometimes the the, the tongue can lie a little bit. But when you integrate the two, you get the true picture. So with the tongue, we are looking at the size of the tongue, the shape of the tongue, the texture of the tongue. You're looking at the tongue coat. And the different areas of the tongue then correspond to different areas of the body. So, for instance, the very tip of the tongue is the heart region, um, kind of the middle of the tongue. You're looking at the digestive system, the sides of the tongue. You're looking at the liver and gallbladder health and the back of the tongue. You're looking at the lower abdomen, which would be your, you know, your large intestine, your kidney function, your bladder, etc. Does it take long? To look at? Yeah. No, God, you can tell, you can tell a huge amount within, I'd say about 30 seconds. Do you want to have a look at mine? Oh, go on. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Okay, what's the verdict? All right, what's the verdict? Now, the lighting, we have to admit in here, isn't fantastic. Um, I would say it's a little bit on the pale side, so a little bit blood deficient. So I would be saying to you to make sure to be eating your leafy green vegetables, making sure to have a good quality red meat, maybe, you know, once a fortnight anyway. I don't know if you're vegetarian. Um, The other thing is you've got a very small midline crack in the centre of your tongue. So your digestive system needs a little bit of help. Um, is what I would say. So it would be the area in your body that I would say is probably kind of maybe your weakness. Now, it's not that it is weak. It's just it's the area in your body, I would say, that you have to make sure that you keep it regulated. And something that you suggest for digestion, um, which really interests me, is starting the day with a ginger tea. Tell us a bit about that. Okay, so when we talk about a ginger tea, it's not a kind of a bought ginger tea. I would recommend an awful lot of my clients to have fresh ginger in hot water first thing in the morning. Ginger is probably nature's best probiotic and it's cheap as chips. So why wouldn't you? Um, so I generally say to people, look, buy a grand big bulb of ginger. It'll cost you less than a euro. I usually recommend getting a potato peeler, peeling the skin off the outside and then you can store it. It freezes really well. So store it in the freezer and then you can just grate a small amount because it grates really easily from frozen. So you can grate a little bit of it into a cup in the morning, add a bit of boiling water, let it steep for a few minutes and have that first. Preferably, if you can, about 20 minutes before your breakfast. So what you're doing is you're setting up your digestive system for the day. So you're providing it with a probiotic. Uh, Ginger is also an amazing antimicrobial. So do you like sushi? 
Yes. Yeah. So if you think about when you have your sushi, you always have ginger with it. And the reason being is that just in case there's any microbes because the fish is raw, what you're doing is you're negating that and you're making sure that the digestive system is protected from that. So that's why you have fresh ginger with your um, sushi. Uh, the other thing you're doing is you're warming up the digestive system. So again, our body is amazing. It's constantly communicating with the external environment. So your internal environment and the external environment always want to stay in balance. So we're in the we're in Ireland and it's a really damp country. Even the summer, look, just look at the way this summer was. <laughs> I think we could even say beyond damp. It's it was wet. Um, so it means we have to be mindful about the way our digestive system works. So if we have a very damp external environment, we have to be very careful about not putting in damp foods to our internal environment. And ginger is a beautiful warming spice. So you're going to help then to in, improve the digestion. I always, I suppose the analogy I would use is your dig- if you think about your digestive system a bit like the engine of a car. So we all understand that with the engine of a car, we need to give it the right fuel and we get, need to give it in the right way. And we all understand that the engine works best when it's MOT'd and also serviced and also when it is warmed up. Your digestive system is exactly the same. So I would be saying, particularly this time of the year where we live, it's really important to start the day with that lovely kind of warm feeling because you're setting the, it's like stoking the furnace. It's like you're setting it up for the day. And so many people are doing things like having, you know, yogurt and granola or they're having these overnight oats, which horrified me when I found people were eating them from the fridge. From your digestive point of view, the fridge is not your friend. It's not because you're eating the contents of the fridge. It's because you're eating cold foods and, and we don't live in an environment for that. Wow. Well, I'm sorry to admit to you that since the launch, when I heard you talking about the the bulb of ginger, I did buy one. I did peel it. I did put it in the freezer. But you but haven't had it. It's gone no further <laughs> than the freezer. I need it to be somewhere where I can see it. But I mean, it does make yeah. sense, you know, and it really does. And to start with something warming and nourishing, you know, you can still go on to have that coffee later on that morning if that's what you want. Yeah. But start off on a on a positive, I think. Yeah, because if you're starting on like cold foods are like with the coffee, obviously what you're doing there is you're stimulating your adrenal system. So you're by starting the day like that, um, particularly as women, because we 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 have different uh, different physiology to men. Um, so it can really kick out your hormones because obviously you're activating your adrenal glands, which are responsible for not only your stress hormones, but also the, the interplay between your stress hormones and your your um, sex hormones um, and, not, and not to mention your sleep hormones. So um, I would be saying, yeah, coffee, coffee is not the best way to start the day for anyone, but men will get away with it easier than women. And uh, whereas with the ginger, it's, you know, it's a win-win-win situation. You're getting the probiotic, you're getting the warmth. And actually, I had a, a client who, it, she fascinated me because she was a complete, she said it, she said, I'm a coffeeholic. There's no way you'll get me to give up coffee. So she was drinking, and I'm talking, she was drinking 10 cups a day. Um, and she was wondering why she had me- why she had menopausal symptoms. And I was going, um, coffee is a player in this. So she said, ask me to do anything else. I'll stand on my head. Just don't ask me to give up coffee. So it's atomic habits. It's incremental. You can't, like if I turned around and said to her, yeah, give up coffee. I'd have never seen her again. So instead what I said is, okay, could you do me a favour? What are the coffees that you really, really enjoy? So she told me those. So I said, okay, I'm going to allow you keep all of those coffees, 
but not the one first in the morning. That's the one I want you to get rid of and do ginger water instead. And I couldn't believe it. Within a month, she was completely off coffee and it was the ginger water she was drinking. She said, I'm getting the same buzz from that. And I mean, I've met your clients firsthand. I've, I've seen the kind of magic that you have weaved through all of this knowledge. But there could be people that are listening saying, oh, for God's sake, I mean, ginger tea isn't going to fix everything. And, you know, I think we kind of pit Eastern and Western medicine against each other. And you're from a pharmacology background. You're not negating the medical world. But why can't these things work in harmony? I think it's ignorance and I think it's fear. To be honest, um, I think that most people who are practicing Chinese medicine now, I, I obviously I'm I have, I suppose, a unique background because I was so steeped in in, you know, I suppose, kind of Western medicine. And then I pivoted and I pivoted because it seemed so logical to me. It was like, yes, why why would you separate the body into systems, be, into various systems? And why would you go and see one person like your cardiologist for your heart and then see, you know, gastroenterologist about your digestive system and then, you know, see a psychiatrist about your mental health because you're one organism and all of those systems are integrated within your body and within your head and your head and your, you know, your mind and your body are integrated with each other. So they all influence each other. So the reductionist side of Western medicine never made any sense to me. Um, whereas, I mean, and at the same time, I have absolute admiration and respect for the aspects of Western medicine where it soars. And those would be things like, um, you know, um, traumatic medicine, surgery, acute thing, acute accidents, dealing with those sorts of things. But I think even people who are practicing Western medicine can see that um, when it comes to dealing with chronic issues, it, it falls short. Um, it tends to use um, pharmacological agents. And yeah, you're right, I have a PhD in pharmacology, so this is my background. Um, it's, which is like putting a plaster over like nearly a broken leg, as opposed to where Chinese medicine excels is very much in the chronic, because the body has an inherent and amazing capacity to heal itself and it wants to be healed. It wants to be in health. It does not like dis-ease. You know, I think that's a great, we forget the origin of the words, it's dis-ease. So the body doesn't want to be in that place. It wants to be whole and it wants to be healthy. And so I think that when you can marry the two and integrate the two, that's where you're getting the best. And that's what it should be. It should be pulling from both sides. And the same even with, I think, in Western medicine. Like, if I can give you an example, I had a client who came to me with suffering with really chronic migraines. Now, he was um, I, he was sent to me by a physiotherapist. So that was great. I felt really good about that, that the physio kind of saw beyond. The physio had been doing a lot of physical stuff because he had back issues and said, look, I think the migraines, you need another approach. And he referred him on to me. This guy had about 15 consultants working for him because it was he had loads of different things going on. I, you know, And so he had a whole medical team behind him, but nobody was talking to each other. And you're talking about somebody who had migraines for 15 years plus and was on really heavy painkillers on a daily basis and had been for 15 for those 15 years. And not only that, he was losing at least kind of probably four days of work a month because of these migraines. And within about two months, we had the migraines down to about two a month 
but they did they weren't debilitating. He could still work through them, but he preferred not to. But if he took a paracetamol, he was able to get rid of it. And within that, I wrote to all of his consultants and his medical team, including his GP. And do you know how many responses I got back? I'm going to say zero. Absolutely zero. Nobody was interested. And, you know, he wrote me an amazing review, um, which was lovely of him. But as he said, he was going around in circles for 15 years with nobody talking to each other. And yet I was the only one who sat down with him and actually looked at him as a as a as a full being and I looked at everything you know from his digestive system to you know his sleep to his family situation to his work and integrated the whole lot and then I was able to not only treat him but also I was able to guide him in how best to help himself and that's that's actually really the bit that I love the most is when you can empower somebody else to go away and do it themselves. Well, I think it's incredible work that you do. I also think you're really inspirational. Uh, you've two teenage kids. You're just embarking on this new chapter of your life, new clinic, so many incredible plans. And at the heart of it, it's helping people to feel like their best selves. If people want to find out more, they can go to fionabarry.ie or she's Dr. Underscore Fiona Barry on Instagram. Fiona, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, performance psychologist Jerry Hussey on the self-doubt that fired up his second book, The Freedom Within. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're very welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, one of my favourite people is Jerry Hussey, my next guest, a crusader for the good of the human race. He's poured his personal experience and his qualifications into this work as a performance psychologist. He's been on the show many times talking about this and Soul Space, which he and his wife Miriam co-founded. His first book, Awaken the Power Within, was a knockout bestseller. And he joins me in studio now to talk about his just released second book, the freedom within. Jerry, you are very welcome as always. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a busy week. You've had lots of interviews. I know you had the launch this week. How do you feel about this stage of the book, the talking about it? Um, it's not about this. I love this work. So my book is my work. It's my discoveries. It's, you know, I said last night we had a little book launch and it's hard for me to separate myself from this work because this is what I'm meant to be doing. This is, uh, so I love talking about this, whether it's the book or whether it's, I just love this content. I love trying to understand who we are as human beings. What is the science, the real science behind the amazing human being? And then why in a world of, of so many people, why so many people feel alone and why so many of us feel not good enough, why so many of us push ourselves so hard, and why so many of us find it hard to love ourselves and accept ourselves. So this work, uh, you know, I never thought I'd write one book, so to have a second one out is amazing. And I still feel I'm only scratching the surface of what there is to know. I, I still think we as human beings, we defy science, we defy logic, we even defy ourselves at times. And um, we're overly hard on ourselves. We push ourselves far too hard. And I want to try to understand why at the heart of the human soul is so much restlessness. Look what all that's happening in the world at the moment. Why are we so restless? What are we actually looking for? And what would bring us peace? And you start the book with something that I think will surprise people because you're hugely successful. You have a fantastic business, family life, the 
the, the, the book, but it's just before the launch of the book and you are racked with self-doubt and everything you thought you had in inverted commas fixed was coming up to the surface. And that's the fuel to the fire of this second book. Yeah, um, and that's that's everything in this book is it comes down to that day where, as you say, I've done a lot of work on myself over the years. You know, I think I'm in a place of of real freedom. Uh, and yet the day the book came out, you know, when you had all these people telling you it's after breaking all these records and you've it's sold in 50 different countries and it's like amazing. The blinding silence was from my own family. And I thought I had untangled myself from that, but I hadn't. And obviously in my last book, I talk about my own struggles. And somewhere in my mind, I, I created the story that you shouldn't have wrote this book. This is going to break your mother's heart. This is going to devastate the family. And and all through that day, there was an absence, a silence from my family. And it's, it's almost with the second book, the exact same thing has happened. And what I discovered was, as you get freer and freer and freer, and as you start to discover your own tribe and step into your own truth, not everybody's happy for that. Not everybody will encourage you. Not everybody wants you to be free. Not everybody wants you to to speak your own truth. And that can be really difficult when you kind of begin to realize not only do I need to step outside certain tribes, but I probably need to step on for my own family tribe now. And that can be hard because as a child, we're born to be part of a tribe and our family is the most immediate, most important tribe. And we can spend the rest of our life trying to fit in. And uh, I remember I got to a point throughout that day where I convinced myself that writing a book was wrong. It was an act of selfishness. I was going to hurt other people, that I should bury my own truth, that I, why could I be so selfish? And I remember saying to my wife, Miriam, just as I went on a Zoom call with 3,000 people on it, I said to her, I wish I never wrote this book. So that was the moment I realised that there was still a part of me that needed to be healed and there was still a part of me that was so reliant on my family's approval. And what I've discovered is if your happiness or your freedom relies on somebody else outside of yourself, you're still a victim. And I had to spend the last two and a half years breaking that down. Where does that voice come from? Where does that inner belief? And what would actually allow me to be free? And it's some book. I mean, I got sent the PDF of it first. So I'm looking at it on a computer screen and I'm going through the chapters and I'm still scrolling and I'm still scrolling and I'm still scrolling. It is a massive body of work. So it's a huge journey the reader will go on into emotional health. The journey that you went on. This is deep work. What is emotional health? Emotional health is we're all aware of emotions and unfortunately we haven't done enough research on them. Over the last couple of years we've become so obsessed with uh, mental fitness and the brain and the neurons and neuroplasticity and the good brain connection but the brain has nothing to do with emotions and people might find that weird. The brain has no ability to process emotion. The word emotion means physical disturbance. It's a French word. Emotions are happening in the body. It's a chemical electrical signal released from the brain when the brain says, I can't deal with this. You deal with it and it fires it into the nervous system. So 80 to 90% of all emotions are actually held in the body. There's no such thing as a negative or positive emotion. Every emotion is just information. Emotions are not caused by the outside world. They're caused by your response to the outside world. So emotions are something we carry. 
if we don't deal, the only negative emotion is a suppressed or denied emotion. And a lot of us have never been given the opportunity or the training to express our emotions well. So we can be in an emotion for quite a long time and not even know it, not know how to change it. We can begin to believe that's just my personality. That's just the way I am. Or we can lead to believe that emotional dysregulation is actually normal. Oh, well, that's just normal. The world's in chaos and, and I, I just feel miserable because of the outside world. So when we look at what emotions are, where they show up in the body, what and who actually creates them and how quickly we can really change them if we wanted to, you realise we've, we've so much more power over emotions than we think. We actually have an emotional choice. And if you're not actively changing an emotion, you're choosing it. And then the book also looks at the real powerful scientific proof that every emotion has an impact on our physical well-being, on our digestive system, on our immune system, on our hormonal system. And if we're holding emotions such as shame or guilt or fear, not only is it impacting our happiness, it's actually having a massive negative uh, negative impact on our on our on our physical health. So this book is a deep dive into what emotions are, why we have them the role they play, how they change our brain state, how they change our physical sense and what it is it takes to really break free from shame, from guilt, from fear and even in a world of adversity and change, how we can generate and foster an inner world of calm and joy and love and a lot of people will say that's impossible, it is totally possible. And those emotions that you mentioned, the fear, the guilt, the shame, often they show up shrouded in emotions that we're more familiar with, like anger. Yeah. The The big point I'll try to make is there's only two emotions, love and fear. Love shows up as kindness, non-judgment, non-comparison. And fear shows up as impatience, anger, judgment, comparison. You could even go further and say there's only one human emotion, which is love. And the absence of love is fear. So when we break down all our emotions, the big question to ask is when we think of the way we live, the way we feel, the way we speak to ourselves, the way we work, the way we push ourselves, are we living from an emotion of love or fear? And I think that most of us are wracked in this fear. And the biggest fear that we all have is that I'm not enough. And that if people see me for who I really am, they won't be impressed or that I'm unlovable. So we're constantly chasing. We're constantly trying to find something to justify our existence. We're constantly trying to do things, have things to be enough. And I think we never before in the world have you had so many lonely souls. You've never had so many people so hard on themselves. You've never had so many people just believe they're not enough. And I think we just have a world that is filled with fear. And most human beings are operating from a sympathetic dominant state and sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight. And we're racked in the chemicals and hormones of stress. We're constantly bombarded by fear. And we have this inner voice that says, I'm not enough. I won't have enough. The world is is a dangerous place and I'm under threat. And we know that when we live in those chemicals and we live in those stories and we live in those emotions, it has a massive negative impact on the way we experience the world, the way we experience ourselves and our physical health. I use your question a lot of the time, what would love do? And often your whole brain starts saying, well, hang on a second now. And you just have to quiet that down and keep asking the question because 
the answer is in there. You give a really good analogy in the book of whether or not we're being a thermometer or a thermostat with our emotions. Can you explain that? Yeah, so a, t- a thermometer, as people know what it is, a thermometer is really accurate and really good at telling you what the temperature is. It tells you what the environment is. But a thermometer will never change it. So a lot of people just tell you the world is tough, there's a lot going on. They just describe the challenge. A thermostat, on the other hand, is something that recognises the environment or the temperature and then changes it to what it wants it to be. So yes, the world can be unfair. Yes, sometimes you've every right to be angry. You have every right to be bitter. But you also have an ability not to be. You have a freedom to change it. And a lot of us have become very good in expressing our emotions. I'm angry. Uh, I'm sad. I'm tired. I'm fed up. Well, that's fine. But we do not want to change it. And that's the thermostat is the person who can recognize how they feel and recognize, are these emotions enabling me or disabling me? Are they healing me or hurting me? And if they're not enabling and healing you, then I'm changing them. So to be an emotional thermostat is the ability to experience every emotion without judgment, without comparison, without repression, but then quickly identify what emotion you're feeling, what emotion you're working on, Is this enabling me or not? And if it's not, then knowing that we have the chemical, the biological and the psychological ability to at any given moment change those emotions. And it's going to take a bit of work. Another analogy I wrote down because I loved it was about the garden. And if you think of ourselves as a garden, weeds can fly and grow without any problem. And look, some some weeds are nice. I do like a wild garden myself from time to time. But to really get those beautiful flowers, it's going to take consistent work and effort and you get to sit in the garden then enjoy it Jerry yeah. the other side Yeah for me you know every cell in your body is changing all the time you are never the same person two days in a row so WIN for me what's important now so we're changing all the time so every single day I wake up I begin to start again I begin again and maybe the day before I had a bad day maybe I was terrified myself and my wife we've had a month that you couldn't script a month of challenges that we simply could not script and it would have been easy to lose perspective to lose sight and get consumed by fear but every morning we wake up we start again every day is a lifetime and every lifetime is a day so the very fact that you're changing all the time means every day you've got to reset and I think that's People want a quick fix scenario. There's no quick fix. And people then sometimes want to do the work for a couple of days, 21 days, and then say, I'm healed. This is an ama- this is amazing work, but it's consistent work. So we all experience every emotion every given day. Not every day goes well. And then the idea is, do you have the ability to recognize, you know, you've fallen off track, you've lost your way, you're becoming someone you don't like, you're going to stop, going to take a deep breath and you're going to rebalance. And that's what this work is about. It's the ability to rebalance at any given moment. And sometimes that rebalance can take a day, can take a week, and sometimes it takes literally 30 seconds. And that 30 seconds of rebalance saves us from sending a wrong email, replying in this wrong way, eating the wrong food, having the argument that we didn't need to have. That ability, in the book we call it the emotional refractory phase, your ability to move, to recognise an unhelpful emotion and move out of it is called your emotional refractory phase. And that is something that not many of us have ever had much training in. And how does it feel on the other side? Because, Jerry, were you surprised 
that this came up for you again. I mean, you went from a really fearful nine-year-old boy to a qualified performance psychologist working with athletes, writing a book and the fear came back again. How does it feel then to have a solid foundation? What is the freedom within? How does that show up in your everyday life? Yeah, the freedom from in for me is, the love expression says a hot air fly, a hot air balloon flies, not just because of the hot air in the balloon, but because of the ropes they cut, the tied to the ground. And I think a lot of us, for me, I probably had 50 ropes tie me to the ground from an internal self-critic to past traumas. And this was the last one. My worry about what my family thought about me, my need to be accepted by my family or my need for my family to recognise me, to be seen was, was probably the last rope. What emotional freedom feels like for me is the ability to turn up every morning and ask, what do I want today? Who do I want to be? The ability to come in and, and speak my truth and not worry anymore about what other people. And for me, it was about the truth, the, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So now I have a second book out. And I often wondered if I have the same reaction from my family, will I just be propelled back into the same thing or not? I've had the exact same reaction from my family. And it feels completely different. There's not one part of me that is even thinking about it. So this is a journey. I know who my family are. It's Miriam and my two kids. I know this is my life mission. I finally set myself free. Now, as I change, so in the last couple of years, I've gone from a single guy to a guy that was married. Now I have two kids. So because I'm changing all the time, because I'm meeting new people... I think new ropes will will attach all the time. New fears, whether it's fears about the business growth or... And I think what we do is as we change as people, we have to realise that as our life situation changes, new fears pop up. And the quicker we recognise them and the quicker we deal with them. So am I totally finished in my work? No, not at all. Because if the last month has shown me anything is that you never know what to expect in life. And as your life circumstances change dramatically, new fears can pop up. Your ego pops up in different ways. Old stories can resurface. But I think what I have now is a high level of awareness that I can actually hear myself thinking. And in the book, I talk about the observer self. I have finally woke up this idea that I am not my emotions. I am not my stories. I am not my past. I am not the performance psychologist. I'm not the dad. They're just roles that I do. They're just thoughts that I have. But I've finally woken up this observer self that is constantly aware of what I'm thinking and how I'm showing up and aware of my emotions. And because I've worked hard to awaken this sense of the observer self, the observer self would regularly tell me, Jerry, you're in a fearful state. You need to regulate this. Or you're now telling yourself a story that's not quite true. Or you're not really turning up in the best way. And as long as I can keep that observer state opened, then I will always be able to regulate myself. So I, the, the human, the, the fearful Jerry will, will, will continue to lose his way at times. But as long as I keep that observer self opened in that state of observer freedom, then when the human Jerry loses his way, this higher sense of consciousness is how we observe ourselves. When we become unconscious, when we enter a fearful state 
we start to run on unconscious programs. We start to repeat the behaviours, repeat the stories, repeat the emotions so often that we begin to think they're true and there's no way out. So I think for all of us, it's recognising what your subconscious programs are and trying as often as you can to have daily activities that take you out of subconscious programs and ask yourself big conscious programs or big conscious questions like, what is really important today? Where is my mind at right now? What are my stories? What emotion am I allowing myself to be in? And would I like to change those? So I think for me, the human jury will always be up and down. But the higher sense of awareness that I've developed is now, it's like the little toddler. We all have the inner toddler, but there's a parent. And the parent is calm and loving. And that's what we can awaken within each of us. And when you awaken that observer self, you reset yourself quicker and quicker and quicker. You dedicate the book to Miriam. It's lovely. It's a really beautiful paragraph you've written and what a beautiful person, always calm throughout the storms. And yourself and Miriam have a Soul Space event taking place in the National Concert Hall later today. You're saying it's one of your last. Why is that, Jerry? For a while, is what For a while, said. something is happening in me. Uh, I think it's time to pause and reflect. I think it's time to celebrate. Um, I've been so busy delivering. Um, I think it's time to celebrate what we've done. And I've also some amazing opportunities to, I can't say much more than this, but two of my greatest idols in this work have now asked me to co-present shows with them all over the world. So... I would be handing a lot of my future direction and business over to those and I would be going on a journey and I probably won't be back in Ireland for a while yet. And it's just these people have always been my idols. I've always dreamt of just sharing stage with them. So to be asked to co-present conferences with them is just, it's a dream come true. So I'll be handing over a lot of control of my business I'll be handing over control of the direction of my business. I will be doing less events and the ones I do will probably be international. Um, and I'm happy with that. I'm happy to just see where the road takes me. I'm happy to let someone else guide the business for a while. I'm extremely proud of what I've done. I'm really, really proud of the courage and strength that I've had to, to challenge traditional medicine and to challenge traditional science and to be a voice and now I think there's enough people out there. I think this voice is here. Uh, and I'm waiting for someone else now to step up and take on this role. I think uh, my job was to open the door. The door's open. And uh, there's probably a new, fresher, better voice ready to step in. And when they do, I'll move on to the, the next phase of my own career. So that's why I'm saying this one in the concert hall might be the last time you see me around here for a while. Good. Well, look, new chapters, set sail. Who knows what will happen next? Um, you've mentioned a couple of times the way the world is right now. And I want to ask you about that because I know a lot of people are struggling with carrying the weight of what's happening. And if you would have advice for people in that. For me, you got to be you got to be an ambassador for what you want to see in the world. So... We can't stand idly by and let the world disintegrate because I believe it is still a beautiful world and I believe that 99% of people in this world are kind, loving people. There is a mystery and a magic to this universe 
And as long as I'm alive, I will fight for a world that's full of love and, and, and kindness. But if I want a world full of love and kindness, I have to be filled with love and kindness. If I want a world where the e- it's less ego, I got to dissolve my own ego. And in every moment of every day, whether I'm walking down the street and I see a homeless person, I have a choice to continue on and jump on the train or stop and talk to them and go buy them food. And sometimes I haven't time and sometimes I don't know if I can afford it, but you have to do it. You do not walk past someone in need. And that is the challenge I set myself a long time ago. And if that means that I give them my last money and I have to try find a way home because I've now no money left for the train, that's the world I want to live in. That is who I believe I should be. When we release labels and we release, I, I don't take sides in anything. I'm not interested in sides and I'm not interested in who's right or wrong. I'm interested in what would more healing look like? What would more forgiveness look like? Can we see the humanity in each other? And every day I get to meet human beings. And the challenge is, do I see the humanity in them? Do I treat them with absolute kindness? Do I treat myself with kindness? And in every small little way, I get a chance every day to be an ambassador for the world I want. So I would say to people, no matter how small, your actions can change the world every given day. What you listen to, what you consume, how you treat people, who you walk by. All of those things is shaping the world. If you walk by somebody, then you're saying to the world, these people deserve to be walked by. And sometimes you've nothing to give that person. And I totally get that. You, particularly in Dublin, it's, it's very hard to afford to give it to everybody. But give them a moment. Give them something of kindness. Recognize them. See them. And then take a second to recognize that in any circumstance was different. That could have been me. And every time I meet somebody that I'm lucky enough to help, I always know that that could have easily been me. I'm looking at myself. I'm looking at my brother. I'm looking at my sister. And if we're not here to help each other as human beings, then what are we here for? I'm not here to make the train. I'm not here to build a business. I'm here to be the most help to other human beings that I can possibly be on any given day. So what does love look like? What would kindness look like? What would non-judgment look like? So listen to your stories. Listen, watch where you buy your clothes from. The products you buy, where do they come from? Do they they involve child labour? Are they made responsibly? Are they eco-friendly? And every decision you make every day is sending a message about the world you want to live in. So I would say to everybody, Every decision about what you buy, what you purchase, what you consume, how you use something is shaping the future of the world. So just become more conscious. If you want a better world, if you want a world that's more kind, if you want an eco-friendly world, you've got to live those every day. And if every one of us make a hundred decisions a day, and if, every, if 80 of those decisions were about helping other people, it would not be an amazing world. Yeah, the more we shine our lights, the more we can outshine the darkness. Of course. And I just don't think people realise the things we do have control over. There are so many things we cannot control, but I think it's a really positive place to start. Thank you for shining your light. The book is called The Freedom Within. Jerry Hussey, I wish you all the best as you set sail on this next chapter. 
My pleasure. Thanks very much for all supporting me. I really appreciate it. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen, to Simon Keane and to Hugo De Silva-Scott who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.